Reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verses 1 through 5. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear, that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and the nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Ben. Good morning, Arcadia. How's it going? Hi, Maria. Uh, I'm so glad uh, Aaron came because he brought you. That's the important thing. So We have friends in from out of town. So anyway, now I'm all discombobulated. Thanks a lot, Maria. Um, so for those of you who are new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and just some unscripted stuff I want to say about our guest who was just up here, who um, uh, Carrie interviewed, who's really not a guest, but a member of our community who happens to live somewhere else. Uh, because the live stream's back on, I can't say her uh, name, actually. Um, but uh, she's too humble to tell you this, so I'm going to tell you. Uh, she was a part of our community for five years before she left uh, to do what she said God was calling her to do. And if you knew what she gave up to, f to, to fulfill this call, uh, it's an amazing testimony of not only the grace of God, but the power of God in somebody's life. What she gave up uh, it has always just been a tremendous encouragement to me. And so, again, um, she said it, I'll say it. I, I would encourage you, even if you don't know her, and you want to get to know her, find out about some of these uh, places where uh, they're having small group gatherings or even a coffee with her. You will be blessed getting to know her, trust me. Uh, a couple of other things that I wanted to uh, mention. Um, I'm glad Nick mentioned, especially in this service, those of you that can get to the 7.30 next week, that would be a big help to us. Uh, also want to mention, thank, uh, want to thank Tyler James for um, filling in last week. Jackie and I were in Iowa. We were at the uh, Village Creek Bible Camp and Conference Center doing a couples retreat. And um, uh, one of the benefits of being able to go there is that our grandson happens to live at that uh, camp and retreat center, along with our daughter and our son-in-law. But our grandson is there, and so <laughs> we got to spend some time with him. But it was a great weekend getting to reconnect with a lot of um, friends that we've known over the years and stuff, and then a lot of new people as well. That was really fun. Last thing, well, two other things. One. Don't forget we're having baptisms next week during the services. We've already had a number of people who have signed up. It's looking like it could possibly be the biggest baptism Sunday we've ever had, and so we would encourage you. Um, you still have time to meet with myself or one of the other pastors and ask questions or go ahead and say, yeah, I want to be baptized. So please contact us uh, this week so we can meet with you and uh, any of the services uh, we will be available to baptize, and yes, the water will be heated. We're actually going to do it in this room. We're not going to do it between services out there. We'll be in here 
uh, to do that. The last thing I want to mention is um, we've been on a two-week break uh, on Wednesday nights for Wednesday night Bible study. Um, next week after Easter, so on April 12th, we're going to start a new five-week series. I'm personally really excited about this series, um, partly because I love the Old Testament, but partly because of what we're going to be able to talk about and demonstrate. It's called The League of Their Own, Five Important Women in the Bible. Um, it's going to be in here on Wednesday nights from 7 to 8. We're going to talk about Esther, Ruth, Abigail, Deborah, and Wisdom. Not necessarily in that order, but those are the five uh, women that we're going to be talking about. Wisdom, because it is personified in the Bible as a woman. Uh, and one of the things that we're going to do, I'm handling two of those myself, and then the other night, I'm going to uh, the other three nights, I'm going to talk for a few minutes about uh, the the text, and then I'm uh, I have three different women leaders from our congregation who are going to come up one each night, and we're going to have an interview and a conversation about that as well. And so I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I would really encourage you, uh, if you have your Wednesday nights free, to come uh, to that. So let's dive in. Uh, we are in the last week of a nine-week series going through Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. And I want to review what Tyler took us through last week to set us up for today's last message in this series. Um, last week, in the wake of the Messianic verses that we studied two weeks ago, which would be Isaiah 52 and 53, we, see, we saw last week that God assures his people once again that their exile, that they are going to have to go into in Babylon, their 70-year exile will in fact end, and that there is going to be a full restoration of God's people, and that they are going to subsequently even prosper after they have been restored. Moreover, he used the story of Noah to help his people to understand, and not just his people, but all people, to understand that every person who has ever lived in this world and whoever will live in this world is going to have to go through trials, trouble, suffering, tribulation, challenges, uh, even certain types of exiles. And I'm going to talk about that at the end. We all have to go through that. We, none of us are exempt from the difficulties of life, but, but, that in the end, God is a God of covenant, he keeps his promises, and he will always restore his people, those people who have come to him. And so today we wrap up this nine-week series in Isaiah with God's promise in chapter 55 that he's going to make all things new for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And in my opinion, this chapter today, it feels like the perfect prequel then for next week. For Easter and for the resurrection, it also feels like the perfect prequel for in the fall, we're going to spend 12 weeks in the fall going through the book of Revelation, so it's a good prequel for that. And then just to let you know, I'm kind of excited about today because if you've been around for this series, we've been taking mostly two and three chapters uh, every week. We only have one chapter this week, so I get to go a little bit deeper, so I'm excited about that. And I have one key idea for this passage, one thing that I think is essential. There are others, of course, but this is the one I really want to hit on, and I want to introduce it by asking a series of questions, and here they are. Have you been wandering away from God? Have you been dipping your toe into the streams of the world's promises that say that they will fulfill you, only to be disappointed in those world's promises? 
And as a result, have you considered re-engaging with God, but you've shied away because you feel like there's a potential for rebuke if you try to re-engage with God? Here's what we need to remember and what chapter 55 of Isaiah tells us in clear, unequivocal terms. Returning to the Lord always results in grace and mercy and not shame or punishment. It always results in grace and mercy. This chapter today, and you're going to see me throughout, especially towards the end, reminds me of so many New Testament passages and principles. We're going to be hitting on a lot of those. But especially, it reminds me of Luke chapter 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. So in that parable, it clearly illustrates the joy, grace, and restoration that God has for any of his children who have wandered away from him, only to finally come to his or her senses. They've wandered away. They've come to his or her senses. But when they return to God, they fully expect to be treated as an outsider or an outcast or a lesser than. They're going to come back, but they... they they feel like they're going to be relegated. Some, they're going to be marginalized. But in reality, the father in that parable is, is representative of God, and he just opens his arms and welcomes his son back and says, you have all of the privileges, all of the, all, all of the benefits, every part of being a part of this family. In fact, we celebrate that you have come back. There was no shame. There was no punishment for the prodigal. We... We serve and worship a loving and forgiving and merciful God. And we need to remember that. When we wander away, he, he desperately wants us back. So we're going to start looking at this passage, this chapter, sort of a couple verses at a time. Here are the first three verses. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So one of the things that is very difficult to translate out of the original Hebrew in this particular chapter, and in this particular case, is right there at the very beginning of this chapter. You see the word come, um, and, and, it's, and it's followed by a comma. It needs to be followed by uh, like three or four exclamation points and then maybe a firecracker or something. The problem is, is that there, it, th this is what's known as a, an injection, a forceful injection in the text uh, in the ancient Hebrew. It's an invitation, and, and literally, if you could translate it, it should be something like this. Come, come on, wake up. I want your full attention. I am inviting you right now, no matter where you are, what you've done. I want you back in my loving and merciful arms. There is a sense that he's saying, you, you've got to wake up out of your stupor. And he's giving everybody an invitation. He's reminding us that no matter what our circumstances, our ultimate fulfillment will not happen until we fully turn toward the Lord. So verse 1, again, we've talked about this throughout this series, but it's again, it's referring to this, uh, how all human beings have an unsatisfied longing deep in our souls that we keep trying to satisfy in some way, shape, or form, 
But we're never going to be able to satisfy it until we just surrender to God. That's the only way. In the meantime, we're constantly trying to satisfy that longing with other things that promise to be godlike in their satisfaction, but they have no ability to satisfy existentially or eternally. They can satisfy temporarily. You can eat food and be satisfied temporarily, but you're just going to get hungry again. You can quench your thirst, but you're going to get thirsty again. He's using that metaphor to press into this idea and, of course, the problem is, is, is that he says, I know that you keep thinking that these things of the world are going to satisfy you in a way that they're not designed to, but you keep pursuing them for the purpose of satisfying you in a way that they're not designed to. We just keep thinking, well, if I just got more, if I just made more money, if I just got a better promotion, I got a better job, if I got more degrees, whatever it is, if I just ate more Jack in the Box Ultimate Cheeseburgers, my life would be fine. That's kind of my problem, okay? So God is trying to get across the point in verse 1 by using this metaphor of food that we go seeking that we think will satisfy us. Again, Jack in the Box Ultimate Cheeseburgers, Cheetos. I got a cheese thing going on, okay? What God is saying is that he is the only lavish, luxurious, five-star cuisine experience that you and I will ever encounter. He's saying, I'm the real deal. And, and here's what we have to understand. This is so important. God is not saying that all these other things in the world that we love so much need to be ignored. Okay? You don't have to raise your hand. I, I, I know that nobody wants to admit this. But aren't there just times when nothing is better for you than just a bunch of empty calories? I mean, can I get an amen on that? Yeah. And, and then mindless entertainment. Come on, my... Mindless entertainment? How, how many more years are you going to have to listen to me mention Seinfeld for crying out loud? And here's the beauty of that. Mindless entertainment and empty calories, don't they just go together? Aren't they just perfect? Okay, God's not saying those. Here you go. Laying on the couch when your to-do list keeps getting longer and longer. Yeah, later, later, later. There are times when we got to have that. He's not saying that's a problem. By the way, it goes the other way as well. God's not also not saying this other thing that we do. Oh, I've been working out once a day. Maybe if I work out twice a day. I've been working 60 hours a week, and, and the recession is still hitting us hard. Maybe I'll work 70 hours. Maybe that extra 10 hours will do it, so we work 70 hours a week. Um, but you can go the other way with the food, too. I mean, I know people who have, for three months, all they've eaten is kale and RX bars, okay? And by the way, they're no fun to be around, Okay. <laughs> Or, or somebody who said, I just need one more certification, one more accomplishment, one more promotion, one more degree to add to my resume. God is not saying that those things are wrong or that we should ignore them. Rather, he's reminding us that they are not where we find our ultimate and true purpose. We will not be satisfied existentially by these things. Only God through Jesus Christ can do that. And he reiterates that with his metaphor in verse 2. He says, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. That little clause there, that which is not bread, literally translated is the bread of deceit. In other words, these things of the world, when they promise us that they're going to fulfill us in these ways that they can't, it's deceptive. And so we're eating bread of deceit. They, we believe that if we just acquire more or do whatever it is or accomplish this or that, nirvana, utopia, existential peace can be found in those things. Why would we spend our soul money on that? He's not talking about currency. He's saying, why would you spend your soul money on that? 
And then he says labor that does not satisfy. Similarly, he's saying that's, that's working hard to accomplishing something and believing that, that it'll be the end all and be all only to find out that there is yet another challenge to conquer. Okay? Now, here you go. I'm sorry, you Cubs fans. I have to bring this up. It's not a Blackhawks thing, though. I, I mean, I'm giving you a rest from that. But re remember in 2016 when you finally won the World Series? Remember that? And you're, finally, my life is fulfilled. And then the next season started, and you were worrying about how you were going to repeat. There's always another challenge to conquer. Just celebrate that they won their one championship in the 100 years, for crying out loud. It's never going to happen again. They're never going to be like the... <laughs> They're never going to be like the Blackhawks who've won three Stanley Cups in the last 12 years, okay? But even three Stanley Cups, I'm still like, i got to have two or three more before I die. It just doesn't satisfy that way. We should just celebrate and move on with this worldly stuff. Realize that there's always another hill to climb. And, and, and here you go. I want to just hit this one more time. Spend money and work hard. It's okay. Even Solomon, in the midst of Ecclesiastes, which is a great book in the Old Testament, you should read it, 12 chapters about how God is the only thing that's worth your pursuit. Everything else is a chasing after the wind. Everything else is meaningless. Even in the middle of those 12 chapters, he says, by the way, work is a glorious thing that God has given you, and it's okay to eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, yes, you're going to die tomorrow, but go ahead and enjoy the fruits of your labors. It's okay just don't put the pressure on those things to do what only God can do for you. In the end, love God and keep his commandments. That's the only thing that really counts. These things aren't God. Quit trying to put a gold ring in a pig's snout. And then verse 3, he just says, he says, come to me. Just come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and weighed down, and I, the Lord Jesus, will give you rest. That's Matthew 11. And notice that verse 3 ends with the mention of David. That's God connecting David with the Messiah and reminding us that the Messiah was not only uh, in the line of the Holy Spirit, but also part of David's line, the great Davidic line. You need to remember that. And that takes us into verses 4 and 5, which actually looks ahead to the mission and the ministry of the Messiah, Jesus. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know you shall run, shall run to you. Because, the Lord, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Jesus comes as a witness to Yahweh, a witness like no one had ever seen before. And we can see that in his teaching, in his miracles, in his signs, and in his humble submission to his ministry and to his purpose of going to the cross. We see that throughout the gospel accounts. And then in verse 5, it shows how the coming Messiah, Jesus, will do more directly and specifically, he will more directly and specifically call all people, including those not previously chosen as a part of God's covenant people. You know, God told Israel, his covenant people, you're supposed to be a light for me to the rest of the nations. And they pretty much failed at that, so God's like, I'll send Jesus, he'll do it. He'll, he'll talk to the Gentiles. He'll talk to the, to the non-covenant people and explain to them that God loves them and, and, and wants to be reconciled to them. This is like a two-verse summary of Jesus' life and mission in the New Testament. And so after this bold look at, a, at the future Messiah, God then again narrows his focus in the next few verses, these next four verses, for a specific call to anyone who would listen to his words. 
It's a call for people to earnestly embrace God and reject darkness and wickedness. Verses 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Return to the Lord for compassion and pardon. It's awesome. And then God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 6, seek God while he may be found, while there still is time. Uh, There is actually an expiration date on coming to God. You need to realize that. Please don't buy the lie that's told to us either by culture or by yourself that there's always time later for God. He's saying, no, you got to come now. you got to come now. And then verse 7 is a clear and explicit call for those who reject God to reject their rejection of God. They need to reject that. And then, of course, verses 8 and 9, pretty well-known verses, even for people who maybe haven't been around church, pretty well-known. God explains the why for we need to come to him with haste, in other words, come quickly, and to reject our rejection of him. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Two things he's telling us here. Number one, he is God, and he has a different view and perception and perspective and understanding of things because he's God. He's not us. He's a transcendental, sovereign being, unlike us. Here you go. God is holy. That word means separate, completely separate and different from us. He's different. He's holy. He's separate. And... He has a different understanding and definition of what is good. So many of us get angry at God because we think this would be good and God isn't doing it, or this is bad and God did it, and we don't understand that God has a different definition for those things than ours, and his is actually correct, even though we may not necessarily care for it in the moment. So that's the first thing. But here's the second thing, and it has to do with context. Context is so important. If you read verses Uh, 8 and 9, in context with 6 and 7, it it helps to remind us that he's letting people know, all people know, that his invitation is for everyone, even and especially for those who are sure that they're too wicked and sinful to ever come uh, come to God. I cannot tell you, as a pastor, how many times I've had conversations with people who will say, I just can't come to God, I can't believe that Jesus would want to redeem me because I am really sinful. I am too far gone. Nothing can redeem me. There's no grace that could possibly restore me. I hear that as an objection all the time. It's just not true. God's grace is bigger than anybody's sin at all, no matter how wicked and evil. God is saying that right here. My mom, my mom died when she was 92. She came to Christ when she was 80. She finally came to Christ. I remember for years leading up to when she finally gave her life to Christ. For years, that was her argument with me. She would say, Frank, you you don't understand. I'm too far gone. I am am too wicked. I'm too sinful for God to redeem me. And And I say, yes, you got it. That's the point. Jesus did it for you. You got it. And then she said, that's a terrible thing to say to your mom. (laughs) Can't win with her. But then the Holy Spirit moved when she was 80 and she came. 
It was an amazing thing. I was so pleased with that. That, that last silly obstacle, I'm not good enough for God. Yes, that's the point. That's the point. And then here's one other thing that we need to remember. God doesn't tell us this because he has an ego problem. He's not saying, hey, my ways are better than your ways. <laughs> Look at me. That's not what he's saying. He's telling us this because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. God is jealous for us, but jealous in a holy and pure way, not jealous the way we get jealous. He's jealous for what's good for us. He's jealous because what's good for us is to be with him, submitting to his will, allowing his love and his mercy to embrace us. And, and understanding that it is Jesus who went to the cross for our sin, and we, we need to come to him. And then verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Here you go, two verses that say, say don't take God's word for granted. Don't take the Bible for granted. By the way, here you go. These two verses are why it's more important for you to have a Bible open in front of you during church than for the uh, preacher to be entertaining. Can I get an amen? That's true, though. It's way more important for you to have a Bible in front of you than for me to be able to entertain you, or Tyler's mustache to be able to entertain you. Okay? <laughs> we need to understand that the best nourishment, encouragement, and correction we could ever hope for comes from God and his word. Even Jesus says, I'm sorry, Tyler, I thought you were in the green room. I didn't know you were in here. <laughs> Even Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, Satan, came to Jesus and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command those stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God says we can count on his word to be absolutely true and to be the one thing that can sustain us. Even when we think there's nothing worth sustaining us, we can trust his word. His word will do all that he purposes. His word will nourish us. His word will encourage us. His word will correct us. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes, all scripture is God-breathed, literally inspired by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. His word will quench the unquenchable desires of our soul that the things of this world just can't seem to satisfy. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to uh, paraphrase these verses this way. He said that God's word, the Bible, tells us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. That's a quick way to remember that. And then he previews in these verses the joy that his word brings us. Listen to these last two verses, 12 and 13. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. 
We talked earlier in this series about the importance of the, of the symbolism of these grand trees, about how they represent God's strength and power and truthfulness and his ability to protect and provide the cypress and the myrtle and others. And what he's saying here is that when the Israelites walk out of Babylon after the exile in, in the 530s B.C., as God has promised by his word and covenant, they are going to walk out with joy and dignity, with celebration and with victory. And all the nations are going to sit up and take notice. They're going to say, how did those people escape Babylon? Nobody escapes Babylon. And so this exile will be to the Israelites a challenge and a trial and a discipline that actually, in the end, will count toward their good and God's glory. And there's, again, so much foreshadowing here of the New Testament. Listen to some of these passages. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, Jesus says this to his disciples. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. There's going to be suffering, challenges, injustices, things that aren't right. He says, there's going to be trouble in this world. But take heart, because I have overcome this world. I am the only thing you need in this world to overcome this trouble. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul's writing to the church in Rome. It's one of my favorite passages. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. In other words, we are now in the kingdom of God. We are seen by God as righteous and holy because we have given our lives to Jesus. We've been justified by our faith in Jesus. Because of that, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait, what? We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, will not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, another one of my favorites. Paul writes this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... Okay, what is, what is he referring to when he says the tent that is our earthly home? Yeah, this body of ours, this this thing that's withering away that is our earthly home, it's going to be destroyed, okay? Again, quoting our founding pastor, we are all destined to bag, sag, and drag. It's just a reality of life, okay? But if we know that, we who are in Christ have a building from God, a house that's not made with hands but is eternal in the heavens. He's talking about our resurrected bodies. Christ went first, okay? For in this tent, we groan. How many of you have groaned so far today? I have at least three times already today. Okay? We groan. We're, groan. We're longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We're not groaning to just get rid of it. And we'd be naked and exposed. We'd have nothing. We're groaning for something better, for something eternal. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed by the resurrection. So that what is mortal, this body, may be swallowed up by life, our resurrected body. 
He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. So this passage here is also a picture, not just of the Israelites leaving Babylon with dignity, but also of the gift, the indwelling, and the leadership that you and I have in the Holy Spirit. By the way, after Easter on Sunday mornings for seven weeks, we're going to do a series in Romans chapter 8 for seven weeks on Sunday mornings. Does anybody know who the primary character in Romans chapter 8 is? The Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So as we wrap up today, let's look at one other level of meaning for verses 12 and 13. What does it mean for us today, besides the purification we experience through trials, what does this mean for us today and for our eternity? Well, these verses here in Isaiah have all three levels embedded in them. It's the Jews coming out of exile, it's you and I today in our own exiles, and it's the eternal redemption of our, of our exiles from the fallen world. And consider, again, Revelation 22. The new Jerusalem has come. And John records these words. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. This, this, this is a great way to look forward based on what we've read already in Isaiah 55. You can even hear some of those, those words repeated there. So I want to take a minute to consider the exiles in which any of us or all of us are currently embedded in. We're all in some sort of an exile, some challenge. Any of you, you don't have to raise your hands. Any of you in the exile of anxiety today? You know, in the last four or five years, I've been reading all of the reports, the research and everything. Anxiety has just skyrocketed in our world. I mean, it's, it's doubled and even tripled in some areas. Are you in the exile of anxiety? And by the way, I can understand that. The way the world is going right now, the shape the world is in, all the trouble we have, I, man, I get it. Is it no wonder that people feel anxious today? Are you in some sort of a relational exile or family exile? Are you in some sort of a loneliness exile? How about the exile of economic insufficiency? How about those of you who maybe aren't necessarily there yet, but you're worried that it's coming, and that's producing its own set of anxieties? Are you in any sort of career or vocation ex exile? How about this? Maybe you're just in a dark night of the soul exile. Okay. God promises restoration. He says, I know it's hard. And I know it seems, it seems unattainable, but if you'd come and engage me, I can help you. I can redeem. I can restore. Not just personally, but ultimately, I'm going to restore. And that is what we place our hope in. And that is a true hope. I've mentioned this book before. I'll, I'll keep mentioning it. it it's a, I think it's a really important book. There's a guy named Viktor Frankl who is a psychiatrist, was a psychiatrist, who lived through the Nazi concentration camps in World War II. He lived through it. And as he was living through that experience, he decided to do the best he could to take notes and write a book after his experience if he survived. And he did. He's one of the 10% that survived the, uh, the concentration camps. And one of the things he argues in that book, I would say it might even be the primary thing that he argues in that book, is that hope is as important to the human condition as air, water, 
food, and relationship. Hope. He says he could always tell when somebody was about to die, not by the Nazis, but somebody was just going to expire because there were signs that that person had given up hope, just lost all their hope. Hope is that important. And so as we've studied these 16 chapters, and as we look in the New Testament at all the passages about hope, we begin to realize that God places a pretty high emphasis on hope as well. And he says, but the hope I give you is the real hope. It's the hope in the resurrection of Christ that we're going to celebrate next Sunday. And he says, and it's a weird hope too, in several places. It's a weird hope. It's not, you can't hope for what the things that you see because all that stuff is temporal. He says, the challenge with this hope is that it's something that you don't see. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's genuine hope. The conviction of what we haven't necessarily seen, but we have testimony of. So, so here you go. I, I know it's you know, March Madness and brackets and all that. So people are freaked out about March Madness. I, it's not like the Stanley Cup playoffs. I don't know what's wrong with you people. But, um, but you know, Monday night's the championship game. I, knew, I know that much. <laughs> Monday night's the championship game. And maybe, maybe this is the game where somehow your team ended up in the fight. Okay, so uh, Andrea Hamilton, our director of outreach, she, yeah, there she is back there, screaming, you know, jumping up and down. Because she's from San Diego, so she's like, San Diego, what were they? Uh, they were seated fifth, and they're in the finals. San Diego State University, it's amazing. She also picked them for her bracket, which is laughable. Of course, she's winning the bracket. <laughs> Everybody else is out, okay? All right? So maybe your team and your bracket is going to win, and it's 15 seconds left in the game, and your team is up by 20. You can say, yes, I have a hope that's guaranteed they're going to win. No team is coming back from 20 down in the last 15 seconds. I remember the third Stanley Cup championship for the Blackhawks this last decade. They were up two to nothing with 20 seconds left against Tampa. And I'm like, there's no way Tampa's going to score two goals in the last 20 seconds. I was already celebrating before the game was over. That's not hope. That's, that's something that, that's just not hope. God says real hope is that which Jesus has done for us that you have to place your faith in. In Romans, he says it this way. For, this, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes it for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's called faith. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. And by the way, this is in context with verse 16, which says, Though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. And then Paul writes this, For this light momentary affliction. Here's, Paul calls all the suffering we go through in this world light momentary affliction because he says you're going to compare it to something that is incomparable. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all com comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you think for one second that those prisoners in the concentration camps uh, in Nazi Germany, do you think they could see something that gave them hope? Do you think they saw reports that the Allies were coming three years away? 
Do you think they saw anything that they could look out and go, oh, yeah, we're going to be all right? No. Those who survived had to hope in something they couldn't see. But that hope we have to have. That's, that's where we have our purpose. That's where we find our guarantee from God. Our hope is in the gospel, the Messiah, for which these 16 chapters in Isaiah ultimately point to. Our hope is on Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins and the reconciliation that we have with the Father through his sacrifice for us on the cross and the new life, the eternal life and the new body that we get through his resurrection, which we celebrate next Sunday. The hope we have, in fact, is on those last three words of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. Nothing left for us to do. Do you know Jesus? Is it time for you to drop the obstacles and just come to him in repentance and faith? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is true that the hope of the world is in your son, Jesus. And there is no other. God, help us to understand that. Help us to see that. God, we thank you for this nine weeks that we've, that we've walked through and worked through in Isaiah. This has been some of the most beautiful messaging I've ever gotten to be a part of. I have loved these nine weeks, not because the preachers are good, but because your word is excellent. What great content, what joy. God, help us to live this life that you call us to. Remind us that the invitation for us to come does not carry with it shame or punishment, but rather joy and grace and love and mercy. Help us to come to Jesus, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to sing a couple more songs. We're going to take communion together, time of reflection. If our communion uh, servers would please come forward. Again, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's with his disciples and he picks up the bread and he breaks it. He gives thanks and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then later after they had supped, he picked up the cup of wine and he, again he gave thanks and he said, this is... This is the blood of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come to take communion this morning, what we're doing is we're confessing our need for a Savior because we are sinners separated from God, but we're also celebrating the fact that we have a Savior, that he is resurrected and he is alive, and he's coming again. So let's do that now. And as we do that, uh, just know that we're going to have people standing in the wings as well, pastors, deacons, and elders. If you need prayer, if you want to talk about Jesus, if you want to talk about baptism, if you have any questions at all, uh, come and talk to us.
Lord, I confess that I've been a criminal. I've stolen your breath and sang my own song. Lord, I confess that I'm far from innocent. These shackles I wear, I bought on my own. Scarlet sins at a crimson cost.
Arcadia, it was such an honor and a privilege to worship with you today. If you're new here, my name is Zach. I'm a pastoral resident here at the church. If you're new, I'd love to meet you. It's the first Sunday, Sunday of the month, and every first Sunday, it's our intro Sunday. We would like to share what God is doing here at this church. So if you're new and you want to find out more about what we do during the week, what God is doing in regard to our building project, all of those things, I would love to meet you in the back and connect with you. And also, if you're interested in connecting with Lacey while she's here in town, there's information at the back to be able to do so too. And so let me read this benediction over us as we go into our week. Remember the, the Savior who we will celebrate next week, who died and rose for us. He gave us these things. He said, for you shall go out in joy. Jesus gives us that joy. And be led forth in peace. It's peace that he gives to us. Arcadia, go in that joy. Go in that peace. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.